0: It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. 1 Samuel chapter 7 is where we are. I've titled this morning's message, God Ordained Leaders. God Ordained Leaders. The contemporary church, in many ways, is in the midst of a struggle right now. It's a struggle about leaders and leadership. And to be clear, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that there's one clear villain in this struggle. You know, because on the, on the one hand, a number of Christian leaders have led in such ungodly ways as to bring shame and disrepute not only on themselves and not only on the churches or the organizations that they lead, but they've brought shame and disrepute on the very notion of Christian leadership itself. They've done so many ungodly and immoral things that the average onlooker may look or may, frankly, lose confidence in Christian leadership writ large. On the other hand, we live in such an individualistic society that many people refuse to submit themselves to any type of leadership, whether that's leadership in the church, in the workplace, in the society, or even within the family. We're all about our own individual rights and we dare not submit ourselves to anyone who may infringe on our rights. And again, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we're supposed to submit to every dictate of every leadership structure. But God has granted certain leadership structures authority in various domains. I want want to highlight three of those domains for us before we actually get into our text today. First, there's the domain of the home. And we understand from Scripture that the husband is the head of the household. But even though he's the head of the household, his authority at the home is limited. So there are times, for example, when the government may have a duty to intercede in the home. For, for example, suppose the husband thinks it's a good idea to beat his children with a broom handle and lock them in a closet without food. Well... None of us would think that that particular husband was properly exercising his authority in the home. And we would all agree that the state, the government, has a responsibility, they're they're compelled for the interest of those children, for their welfare, to intercede, right? We would all agree with that. And so, even in the home, it's not one person's unlimited authority. And then, of course, the Bible gives us the sphere of governmental authority. Now, this one, in particular, has uh, made a lot of headlines over the past eighteen months and in particularly in this last week or so as the government um, has is using some of its powers with respect to the covid nineteen pandemic now my point this morning is not to argue for or against how the government is using its its authority with respect to covid nineteen that's that's a discussion for another day we had that discussion a few weeks ago, but that's a I'm not going to even touch that this morning. My point is, is that God has clearly given the government a sphere of authority. So, for example, we have speed limit signs on the road, right? We, we all think that speed limits are a good idea, at least in general, right? We might not like the particulars, we might say, well, maybe the speed limit here should be faster or slower, and we might disagree on that. But we agree that speed limits in general, it's a good idea. They're they're used to keep the roads safe. And so the government is really the only proper source to regulate those type of decisions. And so they have authority in some areas. The Bible tells us that the government has this type of authority. And then finally, a a third sphere, and to come full circle again to how I started, uh, the Bible clearly defines one sphere of authority for the church. For the people of God. This is why the first century church had apostles. And this is why those apostles said that the churches ought to appoint elders within every congregation. This is why we have verses like Hebrews 13:17 in our Bibles, which reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, my point isn't to expound that particular verse this morning, but to just to, again, give you the idea that the Bible clearly has a role, has this silo, if you will, where we say, yes, there is a responsibility for leaders within the church, but as I said at the outside of my message, the church is in the midst of this struggle right now. Some are experiencing a crisis of belief or maybe even a crisis of conscience. But that crisis isn't anything new. It's not something that's just happened here in America, for example. This, this crisis goes back centuries, even millennia. For example, in the book of Judges, we hear this repeated refrain in the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The point being that in the absence of godly leadership, people are unrestrained to their own sin. Now I mentioned that refrain from the book of Judges because Samuel is referred to as the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. So in our text today, there still isn't a king in Israel. Oh, that's soon to change. But right now in chapter 7, there still isn't a king in Israel. And the people are still prone to do whatever they want to do. They need a godly leader. And Samuel steps up to the plate. So let's hear from the Word of the Lord. If you're there in First Samuel 7, say Amen. Alright. It's a lengthy introduction, I know, but let's, let's look at the uh, text now. Verses 3-17. through 17. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Ammonites. Or Amorites, excuse me. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Your Word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so I pray now, Lord Jesus, Lord, that You would send Your Spirit to help us understand Your Word. That Your Spirit would illumine the text for us. That we'd understand that this is not a Word of man, but this is the Word of the Lord. And that as we read it, as we apply it, Lord, that we would recognize it for what it is. So use this time to mold us and shape us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My main idea this morning is, in His kindness to us, God gives His people leaders. In His kindness to us, God gives His people leaders. And I want to make four points uh, from our passage this morning. The first point is, Leaders to admonish us. Leaders to admonish us. God has given us leaders to admonish us. Look with me at verses 3 and 4, please. Verse 3 begins with Samuel having a word to say to the house of Israel. He says to them If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel begins with this conditional statement. It's an it's an if statement. In other words, the promises that are made at the end of the verse aren't universal promises. The ending promises are based on their willingness and their desire to do what is required in the first half of the sentence. And so what is what's what's being described there in the first half of the sentence? Well, He's describing what true repentance looks like. That's what the phrase returning to the Lord means. Whenever you read this Old Testament language of turning or returning to the Lord, it's a language of repentance that's being described. And that's what the first half of this verse is all about. It's a language of repentance. But Samuel makes that language conditional because he's acutely aware that not all repentance is true Repentance. Not all repentance is genuine repentance. Sometimes we might genuinely be sorry for a particular sin, but we're only genuinely sorry in so much as we were caught in our sin. We're not really sorry for our sin. We're only sorry about the consequences of our sin. In those cases, we don't have true repentance happening. And so Samuel's acutely aware of that dynamic and so he begins this with it if this is what you're going to do and then notice that he gives three signs three signs of true repentance I want you to notice those when you might even want, I underlined them in my bible I just wanted to wanted them to pop out to me these three signs first he tells Israel and by telling Israel by implication he's telling us okay he tells them to put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you. Now you might read that word Asherah. What, what in the world is that? Asheroth is it's a Canaanite goddess. So this phrase foreign gods and the Asherah is just it's just another way of saying put away the gods and goddesses. All right, that, that's what he's saying. The gods and God. Samuel's point is that we are to put away idols from among us. They're not supposed to have any part in our lives. Now for you and I, of course, we don't have those little statues sitting around our house. At least, at least I hope we don't have little statues around our house. There are places in the world today that still, um, you can go into the homes and you, they still literally have these statues. I've seen that on a number of occasions on my trips to India where they will have a number of different statues of, of gods and goddesses that they're worshiping. But here in America, we're not as likely to have those statues in our home. Our gods and goddesses are much more likely uh, to reside in our heart instead of on our mantle. We might, for example, serve the god of materialism. You know, for we, we might believe that you know, he who finishes with the most toys wins. And so we, we, we're in the pursuit of material things. Or we might serve the goddess of popularity and influence. We, we dare not say anything that our secular age would consider remotely controversial because we fear we might lose our influence in the culture or we might be canceled by our friends if we say something like that. A god or a goddess, an, an idol, it's anything that comes before the one true living God. And sometimes, listen to me carefully here, sometimes our idols can be things that are objectively good, but they're just wrongly ordered in our lives. So it's a good thing, for example, to be devoted to one's family. Your family ought to have a special part in your life. But when our families become more important than God, then our families have effectively become idols in our lives. And so the first thing Samuel says is we need to put away these idols. We need to reorder our lives put these idols away but it's not enough just notice it's not enough just to put the idols away because nature abhors a vacuum if you simply put the idols away without replacing it with something then something else is going to fill the void that those idols once took and so after we put the idols away second notice this it's in the text right there second we direct our hearts to the lord So whereas our hearts had been previously directed at the idols, at the gods and the goddesses, we now reorient our hearts. We we recalibrate our hearts, if you will, to a true spiritual north. We recalibrate our hearts to the Lord, to God. And then finally, third, after we've directed our hearts to the Lord, he says we need to serve Him only. Beloved, our God is a jealous God. Now that might strike some of you as strange, but it's true. Our God is a jealous God. But, but He's not jealous like some middle school boy gets jealous any time his girl talks to another boy at school. That, that's, that's immaturity right there. That that's, doesn't describe our God's jealousy. Rather, our God is jealous in the way a husband or a wife is jealous for the affection of his or her spouse. You see, it's a good thing. It's a godly thing for me to be jealous for my wife's affection. You know, if I see her flirting and giving her affection to other men, that, that should bother me. It should bother me because she and I, by virtue of our marriage, we are one flesh. We belong to one another in a godly sense. We belong to each other. Now, God demands that we serve Him only. Why? Because we're His people and He is our God. We belong to one another. And so He's rightly jealous for our affection. We serve Him only. So I repeat those three, those three steps in genuine repentance. We put away our sin. Second, we direct our hearts to the Lord. And third, we serve the Lord only. And as God's leader in Israel, Samuel had the responsibility to, to admonish the people of Israel to turn from their sin. And so, this, is, this isn't an example of Samuel sticking his nose where it doesn't belong. Samuel's actually putting his nose right where it belongs. And this is one of the roles that pastors play in the contemporary church. One of my jobs is to regularly remind each of us, myself included, of the danger of unrepentant sin. Beloved, please listen. We are all sinners. Every one of us. There's not, Nobody came through those doors this morning that's not a sinner. We are all sinners. But we should all be a special type of sinner. We should all be repenting sinners. So you see, we need to be learning to turn from our sin and to turn to God. We need to serve God only. That's what it means to follow Christ. We need to serve Him only. And notice this. Notice this in the text there in verse 4. That's exactly what the people did. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherah, that is the gods and the goddesses, they put them away and they served the Lord only. Samuel had admonished them toward obedience and they responded to it. That's point number one. Point number two. We have leaders to intercede for us. Leaders to intercede for us. God has given us leaders to intercede for us. Now this point takes up the majority of our text uh, this morning. It's verses 5 through 11. But again, Samuel shows his leadership by speaking directly to the people. Verse 5, Then Samuel said, He wanted to gather all of Israel to Mizpah, um, uh, a a city that's maybe uh, four or five miles from his hometown of Ramah. Gather all Israel there, and he says this, he says, I will pray to the Lord for you. This, friends, is by definition what intercessory prayer is. It's when a person or a group of people pray on behalf of another person or another group of people. We're we're praying on behalf of someone else. That's intercessory prayer. Samuel understood that one of his chief responsibilities as he was going to lead the people of Israel was to pray for them. And we learn from the pages of the New Testament that one of the chief responsibilities of the leaders in the early church was to pray for the people of the church. And I would argue, friends that's still one of the chief responsibilities of elders to this day, to pray for the church. And so here at PHBC, we have uh, two types of elder meetings here at our church. Every month, so 12 months out of the year, we have what, what we call a member care meeting. Um, we do that every month. And then eight or nine times during the year, we'll have a second meeting that we call an issues meeting, where we're trying to work through particular issues that the church might be facing. But at those member care meetings, they are, in my mind, the most important meetings that we have. Because it's during those meetings when we talk about the sheep that have been entrusted to our care. We, we talk about you, okay? Now, lest you get concerned, we're not, we're not doing this in any type of way that might be considered gossip, gossip or any nefarious way like that. We're talking about how we can pray for you. How, how, how we can minister to you. And so normally what we do is we pull out the church directory, and we'll cover three or four pages of the church directory at each meeting. And we'll know people who have been absent so that we can reach out to them. Or one of the elders may be aware of a particular struggle that a family's going through. And so as long as he has permission from that family to share it with the other elders, he'll, he'll say, Get this, this family is going through this particular struggle. And we do that because we want to properly pray for you. And then after we've shared everything, we take all of that information and we go around the room and we begin praying. And we pray for all of those families. We'll intercede for them. We pray specifically for you by name because we love you. We want you to grow in Christ just, just as we want to grow in Christ. The whole process at each meeting may take upwards of an hour or more but it's important work. This is what leaders do. Leaders intercede for others. And so beloved, if you maybe you're not an elder, but maybe you're a, a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader, you ought to be interceding for the members of your group. But please don't misunderstand, you don't have to be a leader in order to intercede. You don't have to say, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm not a leader, so I can't intercede. No, no, you don't have to be a leader to intercede. I I can't tell you how many of you have come and told me that you're praying for me. And I am grateful. I'm beyond grateful for your prayers. Thank you for praying for me. Anyone can intercede on behalf of others. We should all do it. But my point this morning is Samuel, as a leader, was specific about doing it. And we as leaders, we ought to also be specific about doing it. In verse 6, we see the people of Israel, they do, they gather together at Mizpah. Notice this, they, they did three things. First, they, they draw water and they pour it out before the Lord. I, I know that's really two things, but I'm counting, I'm counting that as one, okay? They, they draw the water and pour it out. Second, they fast, That is, so they, they don't take any food. And third, they confess. Specifically, they say, we have sinned against the Lord. Now, let me, let me ask you this. Pay close attention here. What do those first two things have in common? The water and the fasting. Both of those things are necessary for life, right? Without water, you're going to be dead in less than a week. Without food, you might make it a little bit longer in a week. uh, But you're going to die as well if you go without food. Yet the people of Israel recognizing the importance of these two things, the people of Israel demonstrate through their actions that their relationship with God is more important than either of those two things. Their relationship with God was more important than water and it was more important than food. The people of Israel, they gave up food and water and in that, in that place, they confessed their sin to the Lord. I was thinking about that this week, I wondered. I wonder if our relationship with the Lord. Could we describe our own relationship with the Lord and say our relationship with God is more important than even the necessities of this world? I wondered what what have what have I given up? What have we given up so that we can grow in our relationship with God? In verse 7. We learn that the Philistines are gearing up for war against the Israelites. And the Israelites are afraid. So notice what they do in verse 8. They go to Samuel, right? And they, they ask Samuel to pray for them. They tell him, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And just as the Israelites were promised deliverance or salvation from the Philistines, way back up in verse 3, This time as well, they want Samuel to pray for their salvation. Now, the salvation that they're praying for is for sure a physical salvation. They want to be saved from the Philistines. They don't want the Philistines to come through and rout them. But I I can't help but make a spiritual connection to salvation here. I wonder, I wonder, beloved, do you have anybody in your life that you know is far from God right now? Maybe it's, maybe it's somebody who has serious doubts about whether Christianity can be true. Or maybe it's somebody, I mean, they know all about Christianity, but they've rejected it nonetheless. Listen to me. Please listen, listen well. Everyone who dies without trusting in Jesus for their salvation will spend eternity in hell. I'm going to repeat that. Everyone who dies without trusting in Jesus for their salvation will spend an eternity in hell. Do you believe that? I hope you do. It's, it's clear teaching from the Bible. Jesus said it as much with His own lips. Jesus said that. So, beloved, listen to me. One of the most powerful ways that we can intercede for somebody is praying for that person's salvation. We, we don't need their permission you don't need say, hey, would you, would you mind if I prayed for yourself? You don't need to. I mean, you're welcome to ask them if you want, but you don't need their permission to do so. All you need to do is cry out to the Lord our God and He will hear our prayers. That's what Samuel does, isn't it? Look look there in verse 9. Samuel offers a burnt offering to the Lord. And then in verse eight, verse 10, notice this, he says, he cried out to the Lord of Israel and what? And the Lord answered him. God saved Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And beloved, God can save our loved ones as well. He can and He will. In some cases, it may, listen, it may not happen in your lifetime. All right? But God is mighty to save. Point number three Leaders to remind us. God has given us leaders to remind us of his continued faithfulness. Look, this is verses 12 through 14. Sam, he's, he's getting ready to speak again, but before he speaks, he takes a stone. And he sets that stone up between Mizpah and Shen. And he calls the name of that stone Ebenezer. Now, we're all familiar with the name Ebenezer. If, if nothing less, we're familiar with it from Ebenezer Scrooge, right? But maybe we're not as, quite as familiar from this passage what Ebenezer is all about. The, the word Ebenezer ezer it's, it's two words, Eben and Ezer. It's from the Hebrew, and it literally means stone of help. Okay? Stone of help. That last song we sang before I got up here a few minutes ago, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, it has a reference to this passage in there. The second stanza says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. That's a reference right here to verse... Twelve, that's where that comes from. But what is the purpose of that stone? Why did Samuel set up a stone? I mean, what's happening here? Well, the stone is a memorial to the people of God. So that whenever the people would look back and see that stone, they were to remember, yes, yeah, I remember, God helped us. God came through when we needed Him. And this isn't the only place, by the way, in the Bible where we see uh, that type of thing happening. In Joshua 4, when the people of Israel, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they cross over the Jordan, and remember, they carry the ark, and the waters part, and they make their way across, and once they get across, they build a pillar of 12 stones, one for each tr- tribe. And in, excuse me, in Genesis 28, Jacob, uh, one of our patriarchs, he, he has this powerful vision from God, and he erects a stone as a memorial, these memorial stones, they stood as constant reminders to the people of God's faithfulness. And if you're anything like me, you have memorial stones in your life as well. Now, our stones may not be physical objects. Mine, just for the mine typically aren't physical objects. Mine are, uh, my memorial stones usually are different memories that I have. Mem- not memories like false memories, but true memories. One of my memorial stones, for example, um, happened sitting in the living room, in a recliner. I remember exactly where I was. At Barbara Parrish's house in Kentucky. I was reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I realized that night with great clarity, I can't, I can't even, words fail me. The great clarity I had that the Word of God was indeed living and active and sharper than any two had sword. That moment is indelibly written on my heart. I have never for a moment doubted the convicting power of the word of God since that moment. That happened in 1990. It's when that happened. It's a stone in my life. It's a marker forever in my life that God is faithful to his word. Now I could list off other stones if you will in my life and as I'm sure you could as well. But my point is this as a as a leader Samuel set up this stone. To remind the people, listen, remember God is faithful. And as a leader in the church today, one of my jobs is to regularly remind us that yes, God is good. And yes, God is faithful. In the same way that God was faithful to deliver and save His people from the Philistines, God is still faithful today to deliver us from the power of sin and death. He delivered the Philistines, you notice that back in verse 11, by a thundering sound, a thundering sound, a mighty sound that threw the Philistines into confusion. But he delivers us by his son Jesus. When Jesus said it is finished, do you, do you remember what happened in the moments there leading up to his death on the cross? The earth shook, right? It's an earthquake and the veil of the temple was torn. A mighty sound. And then on the third day, when He raised His Son from the dead, death was once and for all defeated. Beloved, here's what I want to remind you of this morning. God is faithful. Don't ever doubt that. He will do what He has promised to do. And so if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. Remember that. I mean, all of this stuff that's happening in our world, craziness, sometimes you look and you just might be tempted to say, oh my God, I just don't know where to turn, what to do. Turn to God. Because He is faithful. Point number four, my final point. Leaders to serve us. Leaders to serve us. God has given us leaders to serve us. Uh, leadership in the church is not about power or status. Leadership is about service. It's about serving others. Jesus, who is our Lord and Master, demonstrated what it is to lead when He washed His disciples' feet. In verses 15-17, through 17, we're told that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Now, I can guarantee you... <laughs> I can guarantee you that there were days in Samuel's life when he wanted to say, I'm done, right? I, I've had enough of these people. I, I'm done, right? There, there were days when that happened. In fact, um, we'll, we'll see in the next chapter, in chapter 8, we're going to see one of those moments where Samuel's like, I, I, I'm done. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll actually preach that chapter in two weeks. Next week, by the way, I'm going to be, um, Brian ornett is being, um, installed as a pastor it's a special installation service and so I'm going um, he's asked me to preach his installation uh, message and so I'm driving up to Burtonsville next week Uh, Pastor John Hall will be preaching here please come and listen to John John is a faithful faithful man of God as he's uh, doing that but I'll be um, at Burtonsville Baptist next week Um, but even though there would have been days for sure when Samuel said I'm done Samuel perseveres in serving God's people but notice this. I want you to see this in the text. Samuel didn't wait for the people to come to him. Look at look in verse sixteen. We we see that Samuel was a he was a circuit rider of sorts. Year after year, we're told that he went from Bethel to Gogal to to Mizpah, and then on his return he would go to his hometown of Ramah. Now it wasn't a terribly long circuit. It's, we're talking maybe twenty five thirty miles. Of course, in, in the days before you know. Modern transportation or whatever, so it's, it's not something you do in an afternoon. But it, it's, nevertheless, it's not a huge uh, travel. My point, though, is that Samuel served the people of God by being there for them. He went to each of those places. And from each of those places, we're told, he judged Israel. He was serving the people of God. We read in the New Testament that if anyone desires the office of overseer, that's the office of elder or pastor, if any man desires the office of overseer, it's a noble task that he desires. In other words, it's a good thing. If you're, like, if you're thinking, you know, I'd kind of, I would like to pursue that. I'd like to think about being an elder or a pastor in a church. It's a good thing. It's a godly thing to do that. But let me add this. It's only a good thing insofar as you understand at the outset that serving as a pastor or an elder it's not it doesn't mean that you get to call all the shots and everything gets to go your way okay it doesn't happen because that's not what eldering is about eldering is about serving God's sheep listen to this passage from 1 Peter chapter 5 Peter writes says to the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Notice these words. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain. Notice these words. But eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Beloved, it's the enduring hope and privilege of any godly pastor or elder to serve the people that God has entrusted to our care. So in His kindness to us, God has given His people leaders. And it's a good and godly thing to have godly men who are willing to set an example to follow. It's not to say that your leaders here, that the elders here are in any way, shape. We we are not perfect. We are far from perfect. But we're striving to be a good example to follow. And we will, as the Lord allows, admonish each one of us As we need admonishment. And as the Lord allows, we will promise to continue interceding for you. And we hope to remind you of the goodness of God. And point you to Jesus every step of the way. Because we want to serve you well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. Thank you for Samuel. Whom you raised up at a time in Israel's history when they needed a godly example. Thank you for giving him boldness to speak to the people, to admonish them when they needed admonishment, to intercede for them when they needed the intercession, or to remind them of your faithfulness and to be there to serve your people. Lord, I pray that we would learn from that example. And inasmuch as you've given us leadership responsibility, Lord, that we would be servant leaders, not lording it over those whom you've entrusted to us. And so, Father, thank you for your grace and kindness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to this passage from uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.